Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by Squarespace. Liftoff's a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. And we've got a very special returning guest for this episode, Emily Lactawala, the senior editor and planetary evangelist at the Planetary Society, is back. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you back. We're going to talk about planets with you um, and rovers in one case. Uh, we're going to, I, want to, I want to talk about Venus, but I think we're going to save that and talk a little bit more about Mars up front because you have a, you have a new book about the Mars Curiosity rover. I do. It's called The Design and Engineering of Curiosity, and it answers every question you might ever have had about the rover and probably a whole lot of questions you never had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, that's funny. As I was reading through it, I kept coming across sections that I was like, I didn't know this was here, but now I'm like super excited about it. And just, that happened to me over and over in the book, all these subsystems and the engineering and technology that went in behind them. Uh, I really enjoyed the read. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think as as computer guys, which we sort of are from uh, the other stuff that we do professionally, I I always am hungry for those details of like, how did this get built? How does it work? How did the communication systems work? All of those kind of like nuts and bolts stuff that, I mean, I'm excited by the pictures and the, the reports about discoveries and all of that, but I'm also just fascinated by how we make these tools basically and have them function on another planet. It actually took me a remarkable amount of time just to come up with a list of all the subsystems that I needed to learn about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's one of those things that you you turn a little corner and you realize there's a whole there's a whole world waiting for you around you know just around the bend. Yeah, you know the thing that that struck me the most, or, or or just boggled my mind when I first learned about it, is the fact that Curiosity has a whole like circulatory system with a heart and blood vessels and stuff. Well, it's not actually blood; it's just freon. But, but like it's you know it's an organism practically. It's got it's got all the subsystems that an organism has, and um, and they all got to work right for the rover to be able to do science on Mars. Now, um, for people who don't know, because we've we had a lot of different Mars uh, spacecraft in the last couple of decades, Curiosity is is the most recent one, and it's been on Mars since 2012, and it's been in the news recently because of that discovery that actually happened a couple of years ago, but was just reported widely when the paper was published about finding organic matter in the soil and methane in the atmosphere, and it's it's that one. It's it's the big one. <laughs> Yeah, I've been going through the organics paper in particular with a fine tooth comb in order to try to um, explain what is special about this particular discovery. Because as you mentioned, the, the rock samples were actually taken a long time ago. They're from the Pahrump Hills, which is a site that Curiosity was investigating about two and a half years into the mission. And it just, it's not that they held the results until now. It's that it actually takes that long to really understand the data that we get back from the rover. Because they did it with this instrument called SAM, Sample Analysis at Mars, which is a um, gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. It takes samples and cooks them, and then it sniffs the gases that come off. And they can't really be sure that they understand what the instrument is telling them until they've run an experiment on Earth using a sample that simulates what they think they had on Mars and essentially reproduce the entire experiment. And that, as you can imagine, might takes a long time. Yeah, I was talking on um, one of uh, Leo Laporte's podcasts, uh, the new screensavers. We t we got to interview Jen Eigenbrode, who um, yeah. 
who worked on this and um and yeah she said we saw this you know it was the sample was so long ago and we saw it and it's such a big deal that like we were excited but we really needed to be um disciplined about how we analyzed it because what what she didn't want to do was you know let their enthusiasm uh get them ahead of confirming what they thought they were seeing because it's a big enough deal that you really want to um, believe your 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 own information before you start the sort of nasa pr machine that gets to gear up when this but, happens that's right and you know that's one of the reasons i i got a lot of access inside the curiosity mission i was able to um go into mission operations um for several days on the mission in order to see how everything worked and i wrote about that in the book but one of the kinds of meetings that i have not been allowed to witness is the kind of meeting where scientists get together to discuss um possible interpretations of their results because, um, you know, almost everything that they say in those initial meetings is going to turn out to be wrong and reporting it out will just muddy the waters. So as much as I wish I could have gone to those meetings and been able to write later about how um, their ideas evolved over time, I understand their reticence to share that because um, some of the stuff is kind of sensational and you want to make sure that you're, um, that you've got, you've done everything you can to make sure that what you're saying is correct before you put it out there for the world to read. So let's move into Curiosity a little bit. How does this rover different from the the previous projects on Mars? Well, it obviously has a body plan that's rather similar to the previous rover, Spirit and Opportunity. Its mobility system has the same basic design. It's called a rocker bogey suspension system, which um, I think is awfully cool because it's connected to the body of the, the, the rover only in three locations, three passive pivots. And there's a set of levers and linkages that hold it all together and help just automatically keep the body level. So that's pretty cool. And then it's got a mast with cameras on it. It's got um, a lot of engineering cameras that are actually copies of the ones used on the Mars Exploration Rover mission. And um, there's heritage in the radio design and in the software that runs it, the kind of basic driving software. One of the reasons they use the same engineering cameras is so they wouldn't have to make dramatic changes to the engineering software. But apart from that, they're pretty dissimilar. The Mars Exploration Rovers had a pretty small inter- instrument package. The um, the instrument package on Curiosity is enormous, and that's why the rover is so big. It's also got this great freaking big drill on the end of the arm, which uh, has had some problems recently. Maybe we can talk about that a little later. But it's it's a large percussion drill designed to drill into solid rock, and so that alone takes a really beefy um, piece of hardware to support it. And then it's nuclear powered, which is um, really important today, because as we speak, actually, um, NASA is not in contact with the Opportunity rover, because there's a really bad dust storm on Mars, and it's not receiving enough power to its solar panels to wake up. So we're all hoping and pulling for Opportunity that once the dust clears, it'll get view of the sun again and be able to operate. But um, in the meantime, Curiosity is still operating um, quite happily under uh, much dimmer and redder skies. One thing you, you talk about in the book, and, and I've, uh, I know you, you speak about this in your other writing and your, uh, your other work, but the idea about planetary protection. So when we build rovers or spacecraft, we want to make sure that we don't uh, accidentally transfer some uh, organism or material from our planet somewhere else. We talked about this uh, with Cassini burning off in the atmosphere so it doesn't crash into one of those moons. 
I was really surprised, I, I just missed this, about Curiosity's rating with the planetary protection and how that was seemed to be a pretty big deal leading up to the launch. What happened there? Yeah, that was a, a rather dramatic moment in mission management anyway. So Curiosity was originally conceived as a mission that could land practically anywhere on Mars with some limitations. Um, it could, in theory, be directed to a landing site at a quite high latitude where it might um, get in contact, where it might get kind of close to ice. And so um, because it, it could land in one of those locations where it might actually be able to reach um, water, in fact, an early version, early proposal envisioned the um, spacecraft as a Cecil lander that would just have a deep drill that actually drill into ice. So um, in order to be able to do that and make sure that you're not going to contaminate any potential watery environment on Mars with Earth life, you have to sterilize any part of the rover that's going to touch Mars to a really high degree. And so on Curiosity, that means the wheels and it means the drill. So those parts of the rover were, were supposed to be first sterilized. Um, usually, They usually do that by heat treatment, by baking it at a high temperature for a long time, and then kept wrapped up and not touched until launch. And um, both the wheels and the drill turned out to get contaminated in Florida. Um, the drill was because they actually detected a problem with um, with uh, bits of Teflon getting scraped off the drill and into the sample chamber. And they did a redesign, but they wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen. Um, and there were also some issues with some oil on the drill. In general, they just wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to contaminate the SAM measurements. And so they opened the sterilized box that had the drill bits in it, which was a big no-no in order to check that. They also went ahead and installed a drill bit in the rover before they launched it. And the original plan back when they had their planetary protection status okayed was to um, have the rover install its first drill bit on Mars so that it wouldn't, it would be kept in sterilized containment until it got to Mars. And that didn't happen. And then finally, you see um, in pictures of the development of Florida that the wheels get unwrapped and rest on the floor and then get rewrapped later. Um, which again also was a it basically it sounds like there was a, a lack of communication between the mission and the planetary protection office. The mission thought none of these things was a big deal. The planetary protection office strongly disagreed and threatened not to allow the mission to launch. But the fortunately the landing site that was selected for Curiosity was an equatorial one, where there is not expected to be any liquid or solid water anywhere near the surface because it gets quite warm there. And and so it's expected to be dry to a great depth. So they reclassified the mission to allow it um, to have this lower status. Um, and then they also directed the mission never, ever to approach anything that looks like it might have water, um, either solid or liquid, because you're not allowed to by the planetary protection requirements. So basically, it was it was decided that, uh, well, we'll let you go to Mars, but um, sort of with an asterisk, like stay away from anything Basically, that you might yeah. contaminate. And, you know, the, uh, Mars scientists are like, wait a minute, you know, let's suppose we do discover a recurring slope linea that could have water in it. Are you telling me we can't take our rover to go explore it? And according to the Planetary Protection Office, yes, that's exactly what they're saying. And so hmm. um, I, there has been um, a paper that suggests there might be such features actually on, on the Gale Center Mountain, but none of them is close enough for, for curiosity to actually approach them. So it's kind of an academic debate at this point. But, um, but I, it would be a really interesting argument if it actually came to that. 
Now, I wanted to ask about some uh, hardware that's not on the rover now, but was important in getting it there. Um, I think we've talked about on this podcast before the idea that it's actually hard to get down to the surface of Mars because it has an atmosphere, um, but it doesn't have a very thick atmosphere, and and it's, it gets complicated. So they built this... For this, I mean, and when we've had lots of different rovers, you know, in inflatable balls, bouncing around, all sorts of stuff like that. But this has the sky crane in 2012 <laughs> when it landed. It had that sky crane that pops out and fires and lowers it down and then kind of flies off, uh, which seems like incredibly complex uh, kind of thing to have. And, and yet it worked really well. How did it come about that they decided that that was the method they wanted to use to put this thing down on the surface? Yeah, it's funny because when I was covering this as a as a journalist, when it um, came in for a landing, I I just I had a really hard time imagining that it would work. But then I read a book written by Rob Manning, who's kind of the the king of of all Mars landings at JPL. He's an engineer. He was the chief engineer on the mission for a while. And the way he the way Rob explained it, it made a lot of sense. So and it actually wasn't all that dissimilar to the previous mission, um, in that. Uh, you know, uh, Spirit and Opportunities landing style were based on Pathfinder. So that was three times that method was used. Um, it had a heat shield, which Curiosity had. Um, then it jettisoned the heat shield and popped out a supersonic parachute, which Curiosity had. Um, Curiosity had the largest parachute ever, um, but it uh, was still fell under the... Um, the tests that they had done for the Viking mission. So this is a design, this aeroshell with heat shield and parachute it's a, is a design that goes back to the Viking landers. And so all that um, to date was basically the same. Um, then the the lander part, the rover, um, gets uh, popped out from the back shell and goes down on this long string. And that's actually also what happened on Pathfinder in Spirit and Opportunity. The lander, which was that thing surrounded by balloons that you were talking about, is was lowered down from the um the back shell on a string as it continued to descend. The only thing that was really different about Curiosity was the fact that the back shell and its rockets gently set the rover down on the surface and then cut those ties and flew away. So, I mean, yeah, that is a big difference, but it's it most of the landing style was actually already done before on Mars. They also added one other improvement, which was that they were able to steer the spacecraft autonomously. The the spacecraft reckoned where it had flown, um, figured out how uh, its dis- actual distance flown differed from its intended trajectory and corrected its trajectory. It actually steered itself. They call this guided entry. And that's what enabled the spacecraft to land at a, a much more precise location than previous missions. And so a lot of people really focus on that sky crane aspect, but the um, guided entry aspect is what really enabled Curiosity to get to a more exciting landing site. Well, it's, uh, it's a, a very... I mean, they make that concept video, right? And you're looking at going... <laughs> that's all going to work right. But it's yeah. nice to see that it's all part of a progression of understanding how to land on Mars. And it gets a little bit better every time it as is we do a- it more. It is. And honestly, it seems to make a lot more sense to me to gently set your spacecraft down on the surface than it does to whack it repeatedly on the surface inside a bunch of yeah. balloons. Yeah, I, I have to admit, uh, putting a, a, a <laughs> rover inside a volleyball and dropping it on the surface always seemed like a kind of wacky idea. But it worked, but... A very wacky idea. Um, I, I want to ask about the the two analytical instruments uh, on Curiosity, which you obviously go into in the book. Sam and uh, Kemin, I yep. think is yeah. So what what are they there for? What do they do, and uh, how are they different? 
Well, there are two instruments that are designed to um, directly ingest sampled material from Mars. But apart from that, that's really the only thing they have in common. Chemin is a type of instrument that I actually used when I was a geology student in college. It's called um, X-ray diffraction and X-ray fluorescence. It's a way to um, directly identify the minerals that are present in a sample. And it's kind of a neat thing. Um, you put um, a powder inside a little sample vessel, and then you agitate the sample vessel. So you're tumbling the little crystals of the rock powder, because rocks are made of crystals. And so you're tumbling the crystals all around. And then you shine a laser light through um, the little sample chamber, and the crystals reflect light at certain angles. And we measure those angles of reflected light by just taking a picture of where all the, all the sparkles go. When you shine the light on the on the crystals, um, where do they reflect light? And the angles at which the crystals reflect light are diagnostic for different minerals. And so it's really the first instrument we've had on the surface of Mars that can actually directly detect mineral composition. Um, it's, it's better than using spectroscopy for figuring out minerals because um, spectroscopy, it's, it's a lot harder to unmix the contributions from different minerals. Um, XRD is, is a lot more diagnostic. You can also do X-ray fluorescence, which is where you get the light shining on the, on the crystal and it causes fluorescence and those photons can get detected as well. And so it's a pretty simple experiment. You run it and you get an answer. Um, if you run it for longer, you, you get better quality data. You get higher signal to noise. And so um, basically, whenever they drill, they deliver a sample to Kemen pretty much immediately and do at least a few hour um, operation in order to get a kind of quick and dirty estimate of the composition. And then maybe over uh, the next coming several days or weeks, they'll run it for another several hours overnight, over several hours several nights in order to refine their estimates of the composition. And then that experiment's done. They don't have to do any more. Once they've done that several days of analysis, um, the experiment's done. SAM is really different and way more complicated. So SAM has uh, an oven. It's got like 70 little quartz cups that you can put into the oven. You put a sample in a cup and then you heat it in the oven and you sniff the gases that come off. But you can run that gas sniffing experiment in a huge number of different ways. It's got uh, three different detectors. It can, it's got detectors designed to look for different isotopes. It's got detectors designed to sample for methane. It has um, a gas chromatograph that can separate out, um, especially focused on organics, looking at different weights of organics. It has all these different knobs and things to tune and turn, and, and they have to decide each time exactly how to set up each experiment. And then once they've done the experiment on Mars, like I said before, they have to uh, try to run a similar experiment in a test bed on Earth using the um, a sample that they create based on the composition they think they found and then compare and contrast and try to refine their estimates. That's super complicated, and it, it generally seems to take at least a year to get good results out of it. Now, do these instruments, um, do they do they wear out? Is there a limited number of use, or do they take in a sample and then just kind of dump it and are able to just scan again? I've always been curious about that. Like, once you're done with a sample, do you is is that one tick uh, toward being empty, or or can they just clean the clean the area and move on? Well, there's. Um... 
Both of the experiments are have uh, mostly reusable parts, but there are limits. So with Chemin, um, they have, I forget the number off the top of my head, but they have a large number of individual sample chambers. Um, and those chambers have two different kinds of windows. And one of the windows produces better data, but gets scratched really easily. And so they don't really like reusing those cells, although they can. It's just that the, the windows are already scratched, so it'll reduce the quality of the data. Um, but they have been reusing sample cells on Chemin. Um, so many of them have now been used twice, but they also still have sample cells that they've never used before. And they'll keep a couple in reserve for if they find something really exciting. Um, on SAM, they also have a limited number of sample cups. Um, these, those can be reused almost indefinitely because you put a very small amount of sample inside them and then you bake it at really high temperature. If you put another sample in on top and bake it again, it's, um, it's not going to, uh, fire off anything new from the old sample because the old sample's already been baked to its highest temperature. So you'd really have to fill up the sample cup in order to, um, uh, in order to have a problem with those cups. Um, that being said, there are some consumables on SAM, and one of them is helium gas. They have a tank of helium gas they use to puff the gas around inside their instrument, and that they've used more than half of now. So that's probably the consumable that's going to end the SAM instrument, is eventually they're going to run out of helium gas. Either that or um, their pumps are also... Um, reaching uh, their design lifetime and now they're expected to survive longer than that um, things are always over designed but there there are moving parts that can break over time and so one of these days something's going to happen that uh, sam will either run out of helium or a pump will break and and they won't be able to continue with the experiment i think that's a an interesting segue to talk about some of the the hardware and software challenges that have faced curiosity uh, and the team. Like I know they had the, the computer rollover from side A uh, to side B, uh, but what else has, has proven troublesome on the rover? Well, the obvious answer to that question is the wheels. So uh, Curiosity um, took a long time to get the mission going. It took about a year while they were testing out all the instruments and trying drilling for the first time and doing all the science that they did in Yellowknife Bay. And then they started on their road trip. And it just so happened that about... Uh, Two months into their road trip, they transitioned from traveling across um, a kind of typical Martian plain that's mostly soil with scattered rocks um, up onto this bedrock, uh, much, much harder rock. And uh, they discovered, to their dismay, that this bedrock was just shredding the wheels. And it was totally unexpected because they'd done plenty of tests on the wheels. And, and an individual wheel can bear the weight of the rover without getting punctured, no problem. But they hadn't tested, lifetime tested, um, driving over very rough terrain with an entire mobility system. And it turns out that there are dynamics in the mobility system with the way that the legs direct and how one wheel rolling or getting stuck gets dragged over a rock as the other wheels keep moving. That turned out to create um, large enough forces that the wheels started getting punctures and stress fractures, and they were really deteriorating really rapidly. And so um, it was actually around this time that was one of the times that I got to get go inside mission operations. And people were really worried. I mean, there were people talking about what if we, if we only get to drive another kilometer or something like that. I mean, I think people were um, maybe a little uh, overreacting, but they were still, it, it was a massive concern. But um, fortunately, there's a, a happy ending to this story, and it involves cooperation between the scientists and the engineers, because 
the curiosity had traveled over enough um, terrain by that point that the scientists were then able to go back to their orbital data and predict where in the future terrain um, was going to be uh, potentially wheel shredding terrain and where would be safer to drive. And so they worked together with the engineers to map out a future path for Curiosity that still got to interesting science, but avoided driving on bad terrain. And so since then, they've dramatically uh, reduced the rate at which the wheels are deteriorating. And um, there's now currently no reason to believe that wheel problems are going to end the mission. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store, or maybe you want to make a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you want to be like Jason and have an award-winning blog. Well, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. The best part is there's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no software upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you do need help, and they allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and pair it with one of those award-winning templates that are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We use Squarespace at Relay FM for our blog anytime we have news of a new show or a live event. We go in there, we can use Markdown, we can drag images in. It's all very easy. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. When you do decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for liftoff. Once again, that is squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Talked a, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned uh, issues with that drill as well. There's a bunch of different motors in both the drill and the sample handling mechanism on the end of the robotic arm. And um, the drill has had two problems. One earlier in the mission was something called the percussion mechanism. That's the thing that, that bangs the drill and kind of pounds the drill into the rock to help create the powder as the drill is turning. The other problem has been with something called the feed mechanism. And so the way that the drill is supposed to work is that Curiosity uh, uses its arm to press down on the surface with two prongs um, one on each side of the drill. And then once it's preloaded the arm, it's put pressure down on those prongs, then this um, feed mechanism, this motor advances the drill without the arm doing any movement and pushes the drill into the rock as it's rotating and as there's percussion going on. And what happened was that that feed mechanism failed. Well, it's not really clear what happened, but um, the, the strongest hypothesis seems to be that there's um, some... Uh, loose matter um, inside the gearbox, or maybe some gear has gotten out of alignment inside, deep inside the gearbox. And so it sort of works, but it stalls a lot. And um, after a lot of testing, they basically decided that the feed mechanism wasn't reliable anymore. And so they managed to get the drill advanced out all the way, and they're going to leave it there. Um, but then now they have to drill without being able to press those prongs against the rock. So instead of drilling the way they used to, they're doing something called feed extended drilling, where they're, they press the drill against the rock, and then they use arm pressure to drive the drill into the rock. And 
I don't know if you've ever used an electric drill or something and you were in an awkward position where you couldn't brace it with your other hand. <laughs> you know how it kind of is hard to control. It kind of chatters around. That's kind of what happened. If you look at Curiosity's first drill hole drilled that way, you can see that the drill bit walks around on the surface a little bit before it begins to bite. And then once it does start biting, it does manage to progress into the rock. And so recently they were able to have their first successful drill for the first time and I think more than 500 sols. It's been a long time. Um, but they successfully got drilled material. Um, without the feed, they also can't uh, move sample into the instruments the way they used to. Instead, now they have to actually hold the drill over the sample um, doors and and basically run the drill backwards a little bit to drop some sample into the into the instruments. But it worked, um, and so they're back in business. It's definitely not the way they they like to be drilling, but at least they got the drill back, and we're in a lengthy extended mission. So any science that we're getting right now is bonus. So you mentioned the extended mission. We've had rovers in the past that have lasted way beyond the initial rating. Um, sometimes I wonder if the the initial ratings are are sandbagged a little bit. But, but you know, you've got the exa- example of um, of Spirit and Opportunity both completely blowing past their I think ninety day window. Yeah. What does the future hold for Curiosity? How long can it hold out and provide science and roam around on Mars? Well, curiosity, uh, the very thing that's keeping it happy during the dust storm is going to be what kills it in the long term, if nothing Mm. else does. So um, it's nuclear powered. Um, It has a a pile of radioactive plutonium that is decaying and decaying um, radioactive material throws off heat. In fact, it throws off 2000 watts of heat, which is a lot. the radioisotope thermoelectric generator is not a very efficient technology, so it only turns about 110 watts of that into electricity. Uh, but Curiosity does take advantage of some of the waste heat in order to keep the rover warm and thereby saves electricity on heaters. Um, the thing is that it's a, you know, it's just, it's not ever going to get any more plutonium, and as it decays, there's less plutonium. And so over time, the power output of a generator like that slowly decays. Also, the thermocouples get less efficient over time. They deteriorate as well. And so um, within 14 years of the fueling of the um, of the generator, which is roughly 10 years after landing, they're um, not going to have enough power to do much more than be a weather station. But there is, I mean, the influence of, of even beyond that will go on because there's a Mars 2020 rover and it seems like you some of the work you did for your book about curiosity might go toward a book about the Mars 2020 rover because it's it's based in in some part, in large part on curiosity. Yeah, so all the science instruments are different and even the engineering cameras are going to be different this time and they're going to make different wheels, but um, the whole landing system is going to be essentially the same. So all of that stuff with the back shell, the parachute, the heat shield, the... Uh, the jetpack, the sky crane, all that stuff will be the same. The power supply will be the same. The radio, the telecom, the thermal management, the rocker bogey suspension system. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be identical on 2020 compared to um, Curiosity. But there will be significant differences, mostly in, in its sensory capabilities. Now, um, before we let you go, I did want to take a little bit of time to talk about Venus. I, I follow you on Twitter. I see your tweets about about all sorts of things involving planetary science. But recently, there's been some stuff, some different NASA uh, mission selections, um, some conversations about how Venus always seems to be kind of on the outside looking in to I- explore Venus. Venus is close by. You know, there we could get there pretty easily. Yes, it has some issues, but uh, why aren't we doing more to explore Venus? 
Well, certainly not for lack of mission proposals. There's a highly active uh, Venus Exploration <laughs> Analysis Group that um, has for like 20 years now had a slate of uh, possible missions described of different sizes. There have been lots of proposals to the Discovery and New Frontiers programs. I think um, I finally decided that the reason that we haven't gotten back to Venus, um, well, there's got to be many reasons, but one of them is that if you compare the science return from a Venus mission with an equivalently expensive mission to an asteroid, it seems like you get a lot less out of out of Venus because um, dealing with the surface environment is such a challenge, such a technological challenge. And um, there's a lot of new technologies that still need to be developed to enable that. So I think that one path forward would be if NASA invested um, a little bit more in technology development that would help make us readier for a Venus mission so that um, it would seem less risky and so that the mission would have to spend less of its limited resources on developing new technologies, which is just one of the most dangerous things to have to do on a mission because you just never know if it's going to work out or if it's not and it's going to blow up your budget. Yeah, I, I saw a story about how one of the theories about why some of the Venus stuff is is not going forward right now is that there's this feeling like there's some technological stuff happening, and especially in processors that could be um, that could run in that environment, and that would allow more exploration on on the, on the harsh, hot environment of Venus, and that they may be around the corner. So there might be some technological breakthroughs that make it a little bit of a better return. Which I can I can see that point, but I also got captured by that you know the havoc uh, video about the idea of we could put a balloon (laughs) above the above the cruel surface at a basically something other than the sulfuric acid uh, drops in the atmosphere. It's like shirt sleeve weather. It's like Florida (laughs) weather up there. But um, and that that kind of captured my attention of like, uh, maybe our vision of like what a planetary mission has to be, we should recalibrate for Venus because maybe the answer is we float over the cloud deck and have instruments looking down onto the surface of Venus. And and I thought that that was a really um, fun new idea of like a different way of thinking of planetary planetary exploration. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the, um, if you look at what the Europeans and the Japanese have done at Venus, they're focused a lot on the atmosphere. And I think one thing that's stalling NASA is that NASA tends to have a more of a geology focus than, yeah. um, than, uh, countries outside the U.S. do. And so that's kind of stymied, um, our approach to Venus because people really want pictures of the surface. But like, as you say, you don't need to get down to the surface to get, um, uh, visible light or infrared light images of the surface, you can do that at a pretty high altitude. But actually, at this point, it's been um, nearly 30 years since we put a radar orbiter in orbit at Venus. And we can do a lot better with radar now without ever yeah. having to get close to those clouds. And, you know, I love Magellan. I worked on Magellan as a grad student, um, which was the uh, U.S.'s um, last Venus orbiter. Um, but we can do so much better than Magellan now. So what is there is there hope that that one of these missions is finally going to get funded at some point here or is it sort of hope springs eternal but what you know realistically is Venus exploration on the horizon Oh, it's hard for me to say. I mean, there is actually a Japanese mission there right now, Akatsuki. So it's not like right. it's it's completely being ignored, but that mission is focused on the upper atmosphere. I think it's going to take um, uh, some uh, headquarters leadership to say, you know, this really is a priority for NASA to uh, go back to Venus. So I'm, I'm not seeing that right now, but, um, mm. you know, things could change. It's uh, I, I do wonder if sometimes the optics of... A mission. This is a little like how uh, the Mars 2020 rover is going to have a drone 
on it. And and there were some people sort of advocating against that. But at the same time, it is kind of a, a thing that helps make a splash. And part of being doing space stuff is showing the public exciting things. And that's what I keep thinking about Venus is if you could put a balloon in the atmosphere of Venus and take pictures of the clouds and have, have radar of the surface and other things like that, maybe that's a way to... I hate to say it this way, but to spice it up enough that it gives it that extra impetus to get a mission funded. But I don't know if that, you know, if other people are as excited about putting balloons over Venus as I am. Well, I don't think you're wrong about that. I mean, and if you look at some recent NASA missions, it's been a little bit harder to get public excitement into them, like MAVEN at Mars, which is doing great work on the upper atmosphere and magnetosphere, but which is really hard to communicate about. The InSight mission, which is going to be uh, really interesting, um, studying the interior of Mars. But oh, yeah. that mission's whole goal is to sit still for a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. It's hard to get the public excited about um, about seismometers on Earth, let alone Mars. <laughs> but uh, but it is an amazing thing. So I mean, yeah, that's the that's the challenge. I always when Stephen and I do this podcast, you know, there's always that we discuss the push and pull of like NASA. And other space agencies, but you know it's a, it's public funding, and yeah. you've, you having a little bit of flash and getting like New Horizons engaged the public so well, and that was a real shot in the arm, I think, for planetary exploration because people are like, oh wow, there are pictures of Pluto, and like yeah, I mean the pictures are part of the science, but they're also just amazing pictures, and that gets the public engaged. It does. And, uh, you know, uh, returning it to Mars, I mean, look at what Sojourner did. Sojourner was a yeah. lot like the that uh, helicopter in that it wasn't added for any scientific value. It's like, let's can we do this rover on Mars? Let's test out the technology. And there were people who were against it. But um, I'm telling you, it's one of the things that inspired me to a career in space. So yeah, I um, I, I actually think about it every time um, there's a Star Trek Enterprise rerun on because that's actually in the opening credits is the is the video uh, of the like it's like the video mock-up of the Sojourner coming off uh, the, the little skateboard coming off of the pedestal, and it's every time I'm like that blew us away that that blew us away, and that was another way to engage with the public about it. So it's a push and pull. Like we want to do real science, but we also want the public to be enthusiastic about the fact that there is science happening. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us again. We keep referring to your last appearance as we go. I keep saying on various episodes, as we discussed with Emily Lactawalla back in the previous episode, I imagine we'll probably do that again now every time we talk about Mars and Venus and about uh, about curiosity in general. Um uh, where can people find the, uh, the the stuff that you're doing? What What's the best place for people to look for your stuff? You can always find me at planetary.org. My blogs are at planetary.org slash blog. We have our own podcast at planetary.org slash radio. And then I'm on Twitter as Elakdawalla. Excellent. And the book is The Design and Engineering of Curiosity. So people should check that out too. Thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. If you want to find show notes, the stuff we talked about this week, including where to find Emily's book and find her writing and her Twitter and everything, uh, head over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 76. While you're there, you can send us an email or you can find the Tumblr where Jason and I post stuff in between episodes. Uh, or you can just find us on Twitter. Jason is Jay Snell. You can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios. Adios.